0: Hello, and welcome to The Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We look at learning in traditional settings, schools and universities, but also outside of them, after school, at home, and of course, at work. In our second series, we're looking at how schools are coping with COVID-19, including what lessons we will apply to the hopeful aim of building back better. Topics we obsess on include nimble innovations, closing equity gaps, and ways to prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. India has 1.5 million schools, 15 times as many as the US and three times as many schools as even China. It's home to 472 million children, meaning it has 66 times as many children as Finland has people. So when it passed a comprehensive new education policy in 2020, it's safe to say it's one worth checking out. We're lucky to be able to do that today with Erin Singh, principal of the Nehru World School and part of the Central Board of Secondary Education, which is helping to set the standards for the national education policy. The changes here envisioned are huge. Attempting to move India's education system away from a narrow, academic, high-stakes test focus to one based on thinking and questioning, on creativity and flexibility, on no hard separations between arts and sciences, between curricular and extracurricular activities, between vocational and academic streams.
1: It is a quantum leap. It is revolutionary. And we are at a stage of, of development in a country where Uh, Incremental change is not going to help us. We have to brace ourselves and take this new orbit. There is no other way for India to progress. We will have to put all that we have behind this and run with it.
0: To do this, the policy adds three years of mandatory play-based preschool and looks to equalize pay for all teachers from preschool through to secondary school. It shifts the focus of learning from the what, the content, to the why, inquiry. To do this, it proposes fewer exams, which students can take more often, and which ask fundamentally different questions. It proposes more interdisciplinary learning and changes how teachers teach, more asking questions and offering answers. It reimagines what support for teachers and schools looks like, trying to match those who need help with those who can offer it right then, rather than standardized trainings for all teachers at the same time. It will require a massive shift in mindset from teachers, from parents, from policymakers. And for it to happen, it will require a lot of money, a doubling of education expenditure from 3% to at least 6% of GDP. Arunab talks about previous attempts to reform India's curriculum and assessment, why those didn't really work, and importantly, what needs to happen to get this policy from paper to reality. Arunab, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure.
0: India feels like a country that takes education very seriously. How big a deal is this national education policy as a policy shift? Are people talking about it around the dinner table? It's big for
1: us, uh, considering that the last time we had an education policy, I was in kindergarten. It is big. uh, uh, People are excited about it. Uh, They're also confused. A lot of parents have come in asking, how does this impact my child? How soon will we start to see what the policy talks about in action So after the pandemic, this is probably the second most uh, widely discussed topic in in India right now.
0: Why did the national education policy come about? And very briefly, what are its main aims?
1: So in India, uh, education is subject of the concurrent list. So the states have their own jurisdiction on education and the center as a whole has its own jurisdiction on, on education. And uh, a bit of the context is uh, we had 18% literacy in our country when we got our independence in 1947, and we were a, we were primarily an agrarian and handicrafts uh, industry back then. So uh, I think the policymakers in the country had realized that the only way for us to succeed and, and develop as uh, a world economy was going to be by educating more and more people and, and mainstreaming them. So as as it stands right now, we are about 74% literacy uh, with a population of over 1.3 billion people. So very clearly, there has been a very clear emphasis on educating more and more people and doing that with the available resources as we've had them over time. As we've moved from an agrarian economy to a services economy right now uh, with an intent of becoming much more manufacturing, independent economy, and also a knowledge economy, it it sort of made total sense to put education again at the center of our, our planning and start preparing children for the future that is ahead of us. Now, good thing for India is that we are able to see countries who've taken these steps much before us, and we are able to learn from their examples as well. So a lot of subtopics of this policy I can see having been influenced by by the first world and the advantages the first world has had with with those initiatives. So I I think this is the primary reason, this understanding that if we don't educate our student population, there is no way for us to advance in the world that exists right now and, and where we are headed
0: of the biggest changes that I saw in there is the actual structure of it. You've added three years of early childhood education as a requirement to the system. Now, this isn't completely new for India. You have a very deep Angawadi. Angawadi centers are early childhood centers, which are not based around education, but nutrition and support for women and, and children. How big a deal is this shift to ECE and how did that come about?
1: It's a big shift. There is, there is no doubt about that. It's a huge shift. So the Anganwadi centers are run by the Ministry of Women and Child Welfare. They were set up to ensure nutrition and the right guidance for the mother as well. So in some ways, they were an extension to your family where you were getting educated on parenting and we were ensuring that the, the child was well fed. And in fact, the, the government was making sure that all the meals were were in place and, and we were able to see that children were crossing the milestones that they were expected to. And if there was a problem, then an intervention was happening. But all of this was happening in, with the Ministry of uh, Women and, and Child Welfare. A child would actually come under the Ministry of Education when the child would come into the school in grade one. This changes with this new policy. Now, what that actually entails is those millions of kids who are in anganwadi centers and and those teachers, they were not trained to teach basic numeracy and literacy. So it is easy to put this on a document to say, we are including them in, but actually including them in is going to take resources, priorities, and time. And I am most hopeful that some, an initiative like this is not going to stay in a policy document, but you would actually also get to see it in practice. And getting these, they're called Anganwadi workers, they're not even called Anganwadi teachers. So getting the Anganwadi workers to take on the roles of teachers, if this is something that they've been doing for say the last 15, 20 years, and now you're saying reboot, restart, and this is the new ask from you, uh, we will need to support them for a long period of time for this uh, shift in ideology and function to happen.
0: What I noted in India's policy is that it is intended to be still very play-based, you know, based on child development. And I'm curious whether you think there's a tension there between putting this period under education, but trying to keep it sort of protected childhood, play-based, sort of developmentally appropriate. Is there going to be a tension there?
1: There is a tension there, and, and there has always been a tension uh, with progressive schools in the system. For example, we as a school, we would want to go slower and make sure that their, their emotional needs are met first, and, and they're happy at the school, and and in nursery and kindergarten, the, the curriculum would run slower in comparison to many other schools where a child is counting to 100, and it's probably starting to add and subtract, and and is able to tell you a dozen rhymes because rote learning is actually much easier, but you can see it. When, when somebody comes to your home and you ask the child now, you know, sing two rhymes in English and the child knows it. You're feeling proud of the fact that my child knows a lot of stuff at three years of age, which, which is not the progressive education thought. So this tension has existed even before the policy comes in. But what educators like me are hopeful is now that this is policy, we would probably reduce some burden, of course, in higher classes so that we can have an easier learning continuum starting from from nursery, uh, which is extremely required. And it was required as of 10 years back. But I'm happy that at least even now we are starting to talk about it. When we would get to action it, I don't know that. But we are at least preparing with the right speed.
0: So the NEP aims to shift the system from the what, the content, to the why, to a more inquiry-based approach. I see a lot of ways in the policy to do that. Fewer exams, which you can take more often, interdisciplinary learning, a shift to competency-based. Which parts of the policy do you think are most significant to shifting to that more inquiry-based approach and why?
1: I would have to say it would be a clear focus on teacher enablement because you're now asking teachers to teach in a manner that they were not taught in. They are now in their mid-career situation. They were not taught like this. They have been teaching uh, with the previous mindset and their children have been getting great results. Now you're saying actually reboot, change gear. And no, 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 you don't tell them the answer. You ask them a better question. So even asking a better question is going to be difficult. It is easy to give a child uh, a worksheet which has five questions of addition, five of subtraction and and multiplication and division, and say, now this is how your device function. It is much more difficult for you to say, here is one answer, answer is 40, what is the question? And then allowing children to come up with 20 plus 20 and 39 plus one and 80 divided by two and whatnot. And and allowing for that class to go into this independent learning space and and children to come up with a one page question, answer to which is 40. For this change of mindset of the teacher, you would not only need to train her, but to support her and also make sure that through national initiatives, you are changing the mindsets of, of parents as well. So in India, we, we take great pride in, in knowing multiplication tables up to 25. It's, it's quite normal for a child to know multiplication tables up to 25. And, and I remember when I had first come to UK for my master's, uh, when I would go to a departmental store and this person would be using the till to calculate how much I was going to pay. I used to drive a lot of pleasure in having the exact change ready before this person tells me because because every time they would pass one thing on the tail, it would show me how much more. So in my brain, I was doing that calculation. And like how many times I've done that is not funny. Because every time, the person at the tail would be amused at how did this guy do this. And I was quite proud of that ability. But when I now look at this from uh, an educator's point of view, my question is how many mathematics field medals do we have? And answer to that is not very many. So... From that mindset, how do you graduate to that mindset of you need to think deeper and it is okay for you to not know tables till 25. It's a quantum leap that we must take.
0: How convinced are you that the science and or practice and experience shows that this is the right way. I think the biggest challenge that I've heard you say is that teachers are going to say, we're getting the results we want. These kids are making it into university. They're getting the exam scores they want. I feel like that mind shift change has to come from being convinced that this other approach, which could seem slower and messier and harder to assess along the way, and is a bit of a risk for the first generation that goes through it. What is the either evidence or experience that you're looking to, to say, by the way, this works.
1: The cash 22 situation, and you've got it quite right, is the teacher would not want to deviate till the time she's getting or he's getting the right results. Because but that is how uh, efficacy of the school system is, is being measured. How many A stars did you get? Or in our case, how many 90 percenters did you get? And, and last year, for example, in our school, our average score was 91.03%, which meant more than 50% of kids in the school actually had a score over 90% and and they were all A-listers. And it would be very difficult for me to ask my teachers to change from whatever they were doing to achieve this result. Unless, of course, the question appearing in the assessment paper changes. I keep asking what the teachers will keep preparing for what. But as I start asking for why's, they will need to, to shift onto the why's. And with automation kicking in so fast now, at least people who are not even able to get to a why are appreciative of the fact that why is important. So the the second bit of the assessment that the new education policy speaks about and says, well, there has to be more thinking going on and, and uh, critical thought is is very important. So I'm hoping that We would be doing this in tandem. On one hand, there's going to be teacher enablement, teacher training, and the other is going to be changing the assessment that the children are being put through. This is actually not the first time we've attempted this. We had attempted a system called CCE, Continuous and Comprehensive Evaluation, in which we had brought in all of what this policy talks about and more, and given the bait into the teacher to run with it. But I feel we've failed teachers on how you will actually use this power that has been bestowed upon you, that you are going to do project-based learning. Children are going to make those projects, and you will have the power to assess them on it. But in a science project, what is it that you're really assessing? Or what is a good math project? Is it a project that looks good, or is it a project that is perhaps shabby but ask the right questions to the person who's looking at it. So we've attempted that before, we failed once. I am hoping that this time with the new education policy, the policymakers would not leave us after after this document and and keep supporting. But that is going to happen when we put the money to do this on on the table. The policy also talks about, we need 6% of our GDP to get there. We are currently spending about 3% of our GDP On education.
0: I want to really dig into two things you've just said changing that assessment from the what to the why and this teacher enablement. Because if what you're saying is that last time there wasn't the support for teachers, then hopefully the attempt this time will be to provide that support. And what I've heard you say is there's going to be a shift to kind of providing a really deep, almost library of resources two teachers or school leaders plus the freedom to sort of pick what they prioritize and then almost a sort of hotline support system talk us through that what is what is your hope for what it looks like and what is the chance that that actually happens
1: India is it's, it's not just a country it's it's a within the country it's a subcontinent it might sound uh, funny to you uh, but people think that we speak hindi in india but I think we, what, just, just a little over 50% people speak Hindi. English is actually the second most commonly spoken language in India. And then we have regional languages and we have regional cultures. If you put four people from India, from north, south, east and west in a line and, and photograph them together, they would actually appear like there are people from four different countries. We are so different in, in the culture than, and in the tradition that we follow as well. And where we are on our learning needs. So uh, again, for example, the state down south, Kerala. Kerala has had one hundred percent literacy since forever. Like since I have known about the concept of literacy, I have known that Kerala has had one hundred percent of it. But as you uh, go to some other states, we we've not been as lucky, or education hasn't been as valued in those spaces. So when we say teacher support actually, we are going to need much more teacher support in some areas and not so much in the others. And it's not just teacher training and enablement that we're going to need. We're going to need uh, money being put on the table to to get the best talent into education. And the policy talks about that we would give merit-based scholarships to teachers to join education. Now, I know UK has done this uh, for, for a long period of time, and especially for subjects where there are short supply teachers There are initiatives that have been taken to make sure that the right kind of people get in. Finland is another example where they've been able to get the best of their talent to come into teaching. So the policy talks about these scholarships, talks about free housing uh, in in rural or difficult areas. It talks about giving more more autonomy. And trustingly, it also talks about this one more thing. Currently in India, you get paid more money if you are teaching the senior school slightly lesser if you're teaching the secondary school and much lesser if you are a primary school teacher. The policy says that you would not be disadvantaged if you are teaching primary, which basically means that all teachers are going to get paid equal money, which is how it should be. There is no way that the brain of a three-year-old needs a lesser off person and the brain of a 16-year-old needs a more qualified person they actually both need people who are ready for their jobs. And if research is to be believed, what 95% of your brain development is taking place to age six. And within that most development is taking place from zero to three. So by that logic, the nursery teacher should be the most important person in the system. And if that has to happen and with the sheer number of, we're working with what 1.5 million schools in India. And if you do a, a rough mathematics on on this, I think you would get to about 12 million teachers. How are you going to pay them more money if you don't have that money to pay them? So while all of this looks very good on on a policy document, but unless we have political will to see this through, uh, chances are that we would only see this partly getting fulfilled, just like we could only partly fulfill the, the promises that our last education policy had made. If you read that policy, you would still be like, oh wow, this is such a future ready document. So so we haven't had a challenge with, with thinkers. Those guys we have. What we need is uh, people in the government to, to prioritize education and put more money on it.
0: Arguably the government designed this policy. So there should be a will to then fund the policy. So what actually needs to happen to get from three to six who's making that decision and what do you see as the biggest challenge to that not happening
1: so basically in states where i think education has become an important topic around elections we can see more money is being put into education like delhi state uh, as a state is putting maximum money in education in india the last press release they were talking about taking up to 25 percent of all state budget to be spent in education, which is way, way better than all other states in India, What would probably also give some some European countries competition on the kind of of priority education is, is being given.
0: So it really comes down to the states and the state's decision as to how they're going to allocate their funds. There may be a federal policy, a common core, but at the end of the day, it is the state's decisions as to how they fund it.
1: Yes. So there is some money available from the center. So the center needs to increase that funding as well. So there are universities that are central universities and they subsidize education. So I'll give you an example. I graduated from Hindu College, University of Delhi, which was a centrally funded university. So my fee for uh, three years of my college education, and this is uh, the number one arts college of the country, my three years of tuition fee was equivalent to about $100. And the money that I spent to get from Heathrow to my halls of residence at King's costed me more than that. So the government has done some great work. Uh, You often hear about uh, IITs in India. In fact, I think currently out of the top 10 technology company CEOs, more than five have come out of those IITs. So all of those have been subsidized by the government and management colleges get subsidized by the government. So the, the center puts in a lot of money and makes these central government schools and central government universities so they they do have deployable assets so if they want to spend more money the previous governments have created opportunities for center to to directly inject this money in the education system so i think i believe both state and central governments will need to prioritize this
0: talk to me a little bit about this concept of a hotline And how much freedom, at least the policy envisions, for schools or systems or states to decide on what priorities they have? What do we mean by that?
1: India being, I was calling it a subcontinent earlier, is one by fifth of the world's population. So circumstance for everybody is, is not the same in our country. And there is a wide variation of circumstance that exists. So there are parts of our country where if you're standing there, you'd be like, oh, this is first world. No, this can't be a developing country. And then there are also parts where you you see them in a BBC documentary and, and you see relief packets being distributed there. So, so we are currently operating in that spectrum and trying to bring up people at the bottom of the pyramid. Now, when you picture that, you also picture that schools in these areas are not as well resourced as like one another. And in terms of the physical resources in the school, but also the the teacher skill set or the school leadership skill set. There is a spectrum or a bell-shaped curve that exists in that space as well. When you try to make, for example, thinking students, some teachers are going to find it easier because they were already on such a course. Many others are going to find it much more difficult. A lot of school principals are going to find it much more difficult. And you can't keep going back to them and saying now this training program is happening and then two weeks later, another one and two weeks later, another one. You can support with training, but only so much. So the vision is that we create a network in which I can call out for help as a teacher or as a school leader and say, I need assistance on this particular portion of the journey that I am on. There may be a government representative who has some information about it. But for sure, there are countless others who have actually traversed that journey maybe last week or last month or last year. So if we can put all these people on a a common dashboard and allow for them to seek assistance and to assist others and motivate them to do so, we would have traveled a a long distance in that journey. So this is where the concept of a hotline is, is coming in. If I'm stuck somewhere, uh, either administratively or in my teaching and learning process, I should have resources that I can call upon and say, help me solve this. And that solution could come from a template. The solution could come from a workshop or the solution could come from being twinned up. With somebody in a similar circumstance.
0: Let's talk a little bit about assessment because I think that's important. I mean, as I understand it, instead of exams being held every academic year, students will only attend three exams in classes 2, 5, and 8. That's the policy proposal. And board exams are going to be held for classes 10 and 12. The redesigned standards for this will be established by an ass- a new assessment board, and they will be more holistic. They will not just be Subjects, what exactly is that meant to look like? And again, how realistic is that?
1: Apart from that sentence in that document, we haven't got any clarity on this yet. So so your knowledge and my knowledge on this aspect is exactly the same. But this, this is actually not saying that you're not going to assess in other classes. This is saying that the state is going to bring in an assessment at these different stages to find out if learning outcomes are being met or not. Also with the right to education policy that came out in 2009 in India, till grade eight, you cannot fail. So everybody is getting till grade nine. That's where we are at right now. The belief behind that policy was that let us make sure that We are able to take up as many kids as we can into the education backbone and and not leave them behind, which was certainly the right intention. But what eventually became of it was the students and the teachers both realizing that nobody is failing till grade eight. So as a primary teacher, I know all of my children will go to middle school. As a primary school, all my children will go to middle school. As a student, I know nobody can fail me. So we are taking a step back from that position and saying, actually, we are going to do these uh, assessments on these milestones, figure out what is it that the system is lacking, uh, in a way taking onus on the system and not on the child, looking at that statistic at that level. So for example, at grade two level, what percentage of our learner is able to do literacy and numeracy that a second grader should be able to do. And then using that data to retrain our staff and reorient our school leaderships. So that is the intent of bringing in these these milestones, which currently come in when the child is 15 years of age. That's the first time the system is testing them. What some skeptics of this are fearful about is that if they start asking content-based questions in these milestones, the work that we were able to do on skilling on overall development will take a backseat. I mean, I'm very hopeful and I'm praying that they make them as checkpoints for are the right kind of skills being developed in comparison to have the right concepts being memorized.
0: I also noted the report cards will be holistic offering information about the student's skills. Do we know like, what skills we're assessing?
1: So this is being taken from the continuous and comprehensive evaluation I'd spoken about earlier. So in that, there was room for parents to put in their comments and for the teacher to put in her observation. But as soon as you do this, you are making the report card quite subjective. Or you can make something subjective when there are hundred people involved. It is much more difficult to make it subjective when you've got one fourth of the world's population of students in your system. So what skills are we talking about and how we will judge those skills? These are mind boggling numbers of when you move one decimal somewhere, how much impact it it eventually has. Short answer to your question, we don't know which skills we are talking about. That information is not out just yet, Uh, but we do know for a 360 degree report card, to to function, this will need orientation of teacher, student and the parent. And in a lot of cases, it is a first generation learner in the classroom and the parents hadn't had that opportunity to get into a classroom. So how are we going to bring this parent in to this report card and holistic learning is something that we need to genuinely think about, ponder upon and find answers.
0: How does the national education policy envision using technology and what needs to happen for that to become a reality?
1: So the the new national education policy is looking at connecting the teacher and the school leadership to each other. I don't see a clear way ahead where we are saying we are going to start using technology to teach all the children in the country. I think we are far away from, from that reality. But if there is any silver lining to uh, the pandemic that we are going through is its applicability to education and an understanding that if used well, we can actually use technology to enable learners. And if you look at it from the Indian context, while it still may be very difficult to put a very high quality mathematics teacher and an English teacher in the most interior parts of the country where you need to trek two days to get to those places. But it might be easier to install some technology there so that that teacher sitting somewhere else can actually interact with learners. So, but this document was made before the pandemic happened. So when we are making these standards documents right now, we are looking at these new realities and suggesting that this technology can be used much more. Another thing that has gone well with India is that our cost of internet in India is super cheap. And if anything has gotten cheaper over the last two decades, it's the cost of internet. Uh, so, so right now I could be getting like two GBs of data uh, per month for, for one pound or $1.50 a month. So the cost of internet has gone down. And uh, again, previous governments have have got that right. So we we have the capacity to do it. Now we are coming to the question of intent of doing it.
0: You talked about the mindset shift that's required, and I wanted you to just finally address what will happen with parents, which strikes me as one of the major sticking points, and teachers, are teachers on board with this? Did 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 the teachers union oppose this plan? Are they embracing it? Is there a strong teachers union?
1: Depending on which side of teacher unions you're on, we don't have a strong teacher union in the country. As an educator, I think it, it's a good thing. that there, there are unions to make sure that teachers' rights are taken care of, but we don't have a situation where a new initiative is blocked by the teachers' union uh, because uh, they feel it's going to inconvenience them. That's not a roadblock uh, that we're perceiving. Uh, the parents uh, will, will only adapt to this over, over a period of time when they would see that this new way of learning is still getting the marks, or is still getting my child to to that uh, to that university, I don't know if you referred to this book by this author called Ren and Martin uh, in the UK. But when, when I was growing up, so there used to be a book called uh, it was just called Ren and Martin, uh, which was the author. It was a red color book. Every English teacher carried it. So now. Uh, in the school, we don't carry it. Uh, we, we now use phonics and we use uh, tons of other things to teach English to our students. But grandparents who are in education often come to us and say, why is my child not using Renin Martin? And we said, because there are better ways to learn English now. And we do have uh, connects with English who made English, who feel there are better ways of learning English. So stay with us and you would see that your child is picking up English as a skill and also is getting knowledge proficiency as a subject. So it takes some conversation, but because we, have, we are fortunate to have good teachers, we are able to show them that uh, in a short period of time. If we weren't able to do it, the skepticism would grow and, and people will certainly have a problem. So it is upon us that while we say this in policy, but how well are we going to put it in practice that is going to make a break our acceptance to these new ways of learning.
0: And as we wrap up, just give me a sense how big a change this is. Do you see this as a blueprint from which you sort of move slowly forward? Is this a quantum leap? What is this?
1: It is a quantum leap. It is revolutionary. And um, we are at a stage of, of development in a country where uh, incremental change is not going to help us. We, we have to brace ourselves and take this new orbit. There is, there is no other way for India to progress. We will have to put all that we have behind this and run with it. And I, I hope more and more policymakers understand this as things are right now, uh, both the secretaries of, of uh, the central board and the secretary of education, they're both people who are super sorted with their thought process They know where they want to take the country. And I'm hoping they will be able to keep the ministers convinced that where they're headed is the right direction to go in.
0: All right. Now we get to the fun part of the interview. What is your favorite book about learning?
1: The Third Teacher. This is a book that I'm uh, currently reading as well, which talks about one teacher is a teacher, second teacher are the parents, and the third teacher is the environment that you are learning in.
0: And what is your favorite book not about learning?
1: Made in Japan. It's a life story of uh, the, the founder uh, and chairman of uh, Sony. And uh, he's writing about uh, starting his company and start from Second World War. And uh, it has tons of learning for for any leader of any organization.
0: And what are you binge watching?
1: There is this interesting series, but I haven't binge watched it uh, called Blacklist. It's fantastic.
0: Erina, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to speak with you.
1: An absolute delight. Thank you.
0: I think what really strikes me about this conversation is the scope of India's ambition with this blueprint and the way it all has to fit together to work. The plan calls for three years of play-based preschool, a radical and evidence-based change. The hope is to develop core thinking skills from the youngest age. And that fits into the next two stages of education, which are also meant to be more about thinking and not just regurgitating. To do that, you need to change assessments, as Arunup said, from the what to the why. And that means training and really supporting teachers to radically change their approach to asking better questions rather than offering answers. That requires providing resources and support for teachers and incentives to change, which leads into the empowerment scheme Up talks about with a dashboard of support and a hotline to let leaders get the help she or he needs. Then there's convincing parents this approach is what's needed for their children at this moment in history. It's a monster of an undertaking but one that so many countries need to take in their own context, of course. It feels promising, but of course, will the government fund it? Will teachers support it? Will parents buy in? This is one to watch for sure. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, Stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.